Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry? Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Joining us right now is Gary Wexler for a return because he was such a stellar guest. Gary Wexler, no relation. That's how I introduced Gary Wexler, no relation, who wrote a story called The Inside Story of How Palestinians Took Over the World in the Jewish Journal that took the Jewish world by storm and a lot of the non-Jewish world as well. And he has begun a mission to try and organize uh, a public response to what has happened after October 7th in a more meaningful way. I've also asked him to come on the show today to talk a little bit because of his extraordinary corporate experience about uh, stories, quote, facing backlash. Some corporate leaders go, quote, under the radar with DEI. Gary Wexler, welcome back to the Lisa Wexler Show. Hello. Happy to be here. Hi, Lisa. Hi. So, I'm going to get to your movement for sure, Gary, but I wanted to ask you, Emma Goldberg wrote a story in the Times on January 22nd, and the title was Facing Backlash, Some Corporate Leaders Go, Quote, Under the Radar with DEI as New Hurdles and Opposition to Diversity Programs Have Pushed Business Leaders to Approach DEI Initiatives in a, Quote, Less in Your Face Way While Others Are Doubling Down. Now, you are a marketing guy, really a marketing guru. You spent a lot of time teaching would-be corporate executives and in the corporate world. Tell me about DEI in the corporate world now, as far as you know it, and what direction you think it should be going in, maybe, and what direction it is going in. Okay. So I want to respond by taking this in a much more personal direction, because there are so many stories out there like you have just quoted, about DEI as a topic and what it is, and and people's response in corporations and their thinking about it, also in academia, also in nonprofits. I want to talk from a deeply personal angle, which I'm not seeing out there, of someone who was a victim of DEI and what it did to my life and what what it has taken me to recover. Um, I was teaching at USC, For 12 years, I had been at the Annenberg School of Communication in the master's program. I had become 
one of the most popular professors in the department. The teaching had changed my life. I started doing it in my late 50s. Um, it was the best thing I'd ever done. It was by far the most satisfying thing. It was where I felt even more than working with nonprofits, which I had done in my life, working with ad agencies, that this was my, as an adjunct, you don't get paid much of anything. This was my give back. This was the, the sense of saying, I'm really helping a new generation move forward. Okay. Also, my students were from all over the world and of every single ethnic American background. And I used to talk about globalization in class and say, this is where we globalization is sitting in this classroom, the beginning of every semester. I'd say how many languages are spoken in this classroom. There'd always be like 20 or 22 languages. Wow. Every semester, a few times, I would do something at my house on a Sunday morning called Creative Sunday Morning. Up to 80 students would cram into my little backyard from wow. all over the world. And I would host breakfast. My son's a major chef in L.A. And uh, then I would bring in friends of mine, and we would do all sorts of creative engagements. And students would say to me all the time, you, and, and the university would tout its diversity all the time, say, look at our numbers, look at this, look at that. But one of the things I noticed was they did nothing to foster real interaction between the groups. And students would say to me, from China, from Bahrain, from Kuwait, from Turkey, from from France, from Belgium, from South America, from Australia, from India. They'd say, this is the first time we have ever sat at a table and eaten with one another and spoken to one another. And wow. I knew I was doing something really, really important. Okay? Oh, yeah. By about the ninth, tenth year of my teaching, things started to change, and I started to notice a change in the classroom. The beginning of every semester, Students of color would start to challenge me on day one to see how woke I was. Um, and that's the best way that I could possibly put it. This old Jewish Zionist white guy, as they saw it, they come into classroom and they already had a concept of who I was. And everybody knew who I was because I was the faculty representative for a year for both the Israeli Students and the Muslim Students Association, who I brought together at my house on a Sunday morning to meet one another um, and, and, and start to be able to, to get to know each other. So all these things were going on and I started to notice in the classroom I was being tested constantly. And I got through it in flying colors. Um, but eventually it came around. First of all, I could no longer ask in the classroom how many languages were spoken Why? in this class. Why? That was, that was offensive. That was a microaggression. Oh, come on. That, this, was, this was the truth, okay? And I was reported for asking these things. Um, and uh, and, 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 and I never quite understood because it was never explained to me, what is the microaggression in these things in doing this? I knew another thing, I could never, ever again start doing Creative Sunday mornings. The atmosphere had become so tense and so accusatory that I was thinking someone's going to walk into my house and they're going to see a mezuzah on the door and they're going to say, well, that offended me or whatever. So it was like I knew that that couldn't happen any longer either. But then there were three accusations upon me, all disproven. But, you know, once the accusation comes, it, it impinges upon your reputation. 
And so I can go into explaining all this, but here's where I want to talk about the trauma that was visited on me. This happened two and a half years ago, and I just recently realized that I have finally healed from it, that I'm not waking up every morning saying to myself, oh, my God, what happened? What were these accusations? What did I go through? I lost this profession that I loved because I walked away in the middle of the semester, and they said, you're one of our best professors. You can't do this. And I said, how can I possibly continue to be one of your best professors in this atmosphere and in this way of doing things? The personal serious PTSD and trauma that was visited upon me as a result of this situation took me two and a half years to be able to get over. And there were so many issues that came up for me during this time and almost like closing my eyes and revisiting this horrible situation and what I had lost was just undefinable, undefinable. And nobody talks about this, who, the people who are on the other end of this absolutely terror system that is going on in DEI. And, you know, as I said to people, I am a complete believer and champion of diversity and, and, and human ability. What I disagree with is the system that's been created. But if you disagree with the system and speak out against it, you are a racist. And this thing, this thing, this DEI system seems to have spread with phenomenal speed. It it didn't really exist 10, 15 years ago. And all of a sudden it's here and everybody has to be awoken to the same uh, sensibility about it. Who was, who was the driving force? How did it come to be that it became this unquestioned conventional wisdom and, and all of this orthodoxy? Uh, who is the one defining this agenda? Who is it? All right, so this is just my opinion, okay? First of all, it goes back to the PhDs who do their research, do their presentations, recreate the language, reframe, reframe the concept, and then start instilling it within the university system, and then it starts to move out from there. Um, they are the champions of all this. Um, and then also... Um, Ibrahim X. Kendi and Ta-Nehisi Coates and the books that they write. Basically, you know, Ibrahim X. Kendi's theory is if you are not actively working as an anti-racist, then you are a racist. Um, These ridiculous black and white binaries that have been set up of the oppressed and the oppressor, of the colonialists and the the anti-colonialists, they have taken complexity and they have boiled it down into simplicity without nuance, and they have captured people who can get out there and quote all of this stuff of oppressed oppressor, of these binaries, when this is a complex situation, racism and diversity, with a lot of nuance, and they boiled it down to simplicity. So the question becomes, today's society, are you a simple thinker or are you a complex thinker? And I think we need to start looking at the simple thinkers and literally start to go after them and to say, you are the ones that are starting to just just ruin a society with your simplicity and your language because you are leaving out complexity and nuance, which this requires in order to be understood and to work out in this way. And DEI is based on this simple thinking, this very, very 
um, oppressed oppressor thinking is at the center of all this. And this comes from the people I, the, the authors I just talked about and their books. The George Floyd incident happened in 2020. Do you think that that accelerated the implementation of all of this in corporations and universities? Or do you think it was always happening? What do you think? No, no, no. George Floyd incident, a terrible incident, but it was a spark that led to like the flame and the rising of DEI and the intimidation tactics of it that Mm. came out of it, where you couldn't question, you couldn't critically think, you had to swallow and chew the DEI dictums, and you had to march to them in some way. Um, Look, some of the things that are required now, I have heard through other people teaching on the campuses that you have to, with your with your syllabus, you have to write your DEI statement yes. on there. I mean, yes. this is yes. a ridiculous intimidation that's going on. Because as I said, what if your belief like mine is that, yes, I don't, I believe we have to fight racism, we have to promote diversity, but I don't agree with the DEI methodology. That wouldn't work. You have to fall in line with this. Um, you know, the dean said to me when I left, and she said, Gary, it's a pendulum. It will swing back. I said, maybe the conventional wisdom does not apply here. I said, the Bolsheviks weren't a pendulum. They just swung right off for 80, 90 years. And look what's going on in Russia today as a result of all of it. It scares me. Nobody, you know, I don't know that this is the pendulum. Although today, thank God, there are huge forces pushing back. Look at as a Jew and as a Zionist, I have to say, you know, I couldn't because I had asked Latino students in my class. We had I had a class where we were doing cross the aisle dialogue. I was bringing in Republicans and Democrats. And then for the ethnicities, I brought in my alumni because I felt that it was a safer way to do this, to talk about the ethnicities. So we had done um, African-American night, went off without a hitch. Asian night, went off without a hitch. Latino night, I said, I have a new idea. I said, um, we have several Latino students in class. Would you guys like to run that evening instead of me? It will be far more authentic. I'll put you in touch with the great Latino alums coming in for your networking. I get an email, Professor, that was a grievous microaggression against the Latino students in class. You have to be held accountable for the harm and the pain you have caused us by your actions. We're demanding to rewrite your syllabus and to let you know that you will be monitored for the rest of the semester for any further microaggressions against us. I turned it, this is what caused me to quit. I turned it into the administration. They asked me to write a letter of apology and to let myself be monitored. And I said, I'm out of here. Anyway, the reason I'm telling this story is that the intimidation from this, and also you're put in a terrible position, okay? The position is if you don't recognize that, that students of color come in with disadvantage, you're a racist. If you in any way talk about it, how dare you talk about it to single us out? You're a racist. So you're on this slippery slope where you can't win absolutely anything here, and you can't talk about it. So getting back to the pendulum, okay, this is a pendulum going way off course at this point. And 
So today, when you can't ask Latino students to make a presentation in class about their culture, but it's okay to be on campus and, sh and, and chant from the river to the sea and say that, 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 which is basically about a Jewish genocide, that's acceptable. That's acceptable, and you can't be called out for that. That's free speech. But asking the students in class to make a presentation on their culture, that's a microaggression of which they are harmed. Harm's a big word, and you have to be held accountable, and it's painful to them. This is absolutely ridiculous, and this is a total lie. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's a total lie. And not only is, a, is it a lie, it's a weakening lie. It's a lie that doesn't help your students actually succeed in the world. It's a terrible, it's no, crippling. You know what DEA is? It's crippling. Lisa, it's a revenge system. That's what DEI has turned out to be. And a revenge system and a revenge spirit is not going to solve the racism problem we have in front of us in this country. That is not the way. DEI has turned into a revenge system. I think to some extent it's been aided and abetted by a lot of journalists. I do. Oh, I think so, too. The New York Times is, well, you know, what Barry Weiss walked away from the New York Times because of things related to this. Absolutely. I see it. I see it in their coverage. I see it in coverage that used to be honestly called news analysis and no longer is even called that. It's just presented as the news. I see it every day because I still get the print version. And when I get it and I read it, I read it because I do adore their science times and I love their, I love Jesse Green, the culture. There's a lot of, there's a lot that I still love about the New York Times. And I love the volume of information that I get. But a lot of times I'm reading it and I can feel my blood pressure going up. And Bill is like, you know, do we really still have to be having this delivered in print to our door every day? It's not inexpensive. And I'm like, no, no, I still I still have to have my New York Times. But sometimes I feel a little bit masochistic about it because I got to tell you, Gary Wexler, no relation. It's hard. It's hard to digest a lot of what is so agenda packed. It is so full of their own trying to persuade me of their point of view in the guise of news. Well, the L.A. Times is exactly the same thing. It has become the woke press. It's no longer news. It's agenda-driven. I, I don't know how we get back. I'm thinking about what you said about revenge. How do we get back to well-meaning people who were trying to have people more sensitized 
to trying to have uh, and hire and choose people from different backgrounds? How do we just get back to that value, which in and of itself is a very important American value? We're going to have to fight. We can't sit back. And that's what's beginning to happen now, is you are seeing the uprising against DEI. And the people who are rising up are not racist. They are against a system that is, is proving to, be, to, to destroy America. I want to talk about something else about DEI, which concerns me greatly. Okay? Now, and this is, this is a sensitive situation. I believe in hiring, yes, diversity has to be looked at. But the other level of saying we need to be creating excellence in America. Excellence cannot trump diversity, okay? We have to be able to maintain excellence, such as, let me give you an example. I had an argument with a friend of mine. There was an article a few years ago that I read about saying that for the sake of diversity, we should not be requiring from um, candidates of, of, of diverse backgrounds that they have to have a college degree. They can just have, have education from technical schools, and this is going into tech careers. And I thought about my Chinese students who I loved. My Chinese students were brilliant and they were hard workers, and they were committed to excellence, and they were going back to China, and they were driven by excellence. We are in a serious competition with China on technology in many ways. If we as a country are not driven by excellence, and all of a sudden our bottom line is, is it diverse rather than is it excellent, we are going to lose our place in society and in the world in this way. And so this concerns me greatly about the issues of DEI, of saying, are we able to also do, are we going to break down the standards of excellence in order to be able to satisfy the needs of DEI? And isn't that in itself racist of saying, gee, we can break down the standards of excellence in order to let people in, because we don't believe that people of color I think can it's reach completely that level racist. of excellence. It's, it's I think racist. it's completely it's a, racist. I've been saying that yeah. on the air. And there's something else about this, too, which is the analogy to sports. I don't care about sports. Let me just say that. I don't care about them uh-huh. at all. But I acknowledge that other people do. And sometimes, so the other day we were watching a game, and it was the Ravens versus Kansas City. And just because I feel like being a contrarian once in a while, Gary Wexler, I will say out loud, where is the uh, representation of the Asians on the uh, football field here? Where, uh-huh. are, where are the people that are supposed to represent a cross-section of America? And people will look at me befuddled because I'm trying to make the point that by the time you get to the Super Bowl, it's not about diversity. It's about excellence. It's about your merit. The best football players yeah. in America are on that field. Full stop. Full stop. And... And they are the best at what they do. And that's how they get to what they do. And nobody makes apologies for them. And yes, maybe there's a disproportionate amount of, you name the ethnicity, who ends up on that football field because they were great sports players. They were great athletes. Do you know what I'm trying to say? We, we are not, yeah. We, yeah. We, we should look at academics the way we look at sports. Yeah. We, Let we, me we need something. to have the best. I don't know. 
One of the people you should get on your show, if you can, is John McWhorter, who writes in the New York Times okay. um, and wrote the book. He is a linguist teaching it, I believe, NYU or some other college in New York. Um, black he writes man, for the wrote, ethics. Doesn't he write for the ethics column once in a while? Maybe I'm thinking yes, of someone Yes, he else. does. Anyway, okay. he wrote a book called Woke Racism, okay. which was such, such an – it so informed me about all of this. It's one of the best things that I've read. Um, and he's written columns about this, of saying, don't try to reduce standards for me as a black man so that I can access things in society. That is saying that I can't reach excellence. Um, and, and so it's a whole different way to look at this. I mean, it's like a weakening of society. And uh, this has to be, you know, but you, but you can't question these things according to DEI because then you're labeled racist. It's a real problem. Gary Wexler, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we'll have to have you back on. This was a very illuminating conversation. I personally am I'm pained to hear what happened with you with the Latina students getting offended that they were asked to organize their own thing and then reporting back that that was a, a racist thing and an uh, a discriminatory thing for which you had to be punished. Uh, it's painful to hear that. It's it's to me. It's such a, it's such a, it's so crippling to your students that they can't rise to the challenge of doing what you asked, or just turn around and say to them, "Well, I don't understand why we're being asked to do it, but the other ones weren't." Can you explain why you want us to do it? Right. In- instead of this running tail reporting you and. You being villainized that way. It's painful to hear, but it was the university's it's, loss. It's, they lost you, and you were one of their most popular professors. Well, sad. you know, one of the things I said to the dean as I was leaving, I said, you know, you have reached out to these students to coddle them for the pain that they feel. I said, who has reached out to me while I'm going through all this and asking me if I'm okay having suffered under these false accusations? I said, not one person. I said, the university administration distanced itself from me and told me that if I said anything back, that it would be considered retribution upon the students. This is how this insane system is set up. Um, I have so much more to say about it, Lisa. All right, well, we'll have to have you back on. Thank you so much, Gary Wexler. Thank you. Gary Wexler, no relation, on the Lisa Wexler Show. We'll be right back. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com.